You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's April 10th, 2020. I'm Jamaris Perez. And I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. COVID-19 is challenging for everyone, but the disease raises special concerns for those with asthma or other chronic lung issues. Yeah, when I walk outside, I, I, do, I do have like this existential anxiety. How healthy am I to fight something off that we don't even know everything about yet? With New York schools shut down, parents are struggling to meet the needs of their children with disabilities. I'm frustrated because the longer this goes on, this could be a huge developmental setback for my child and so many children out there. A recent drop in child abuse reports has ignited a debate. Are low-income families overreported when it comes to child neglect? Stop and frisk did not make crimes go down. It was a way to harass the Black community. And it's the same thing with mandated reportership. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Will Walkie. Governor Andrew Cuomo said today that New York State is flattening the coronavirus curve. New infection rates in the state are starting to level off, and the number of patients in ICUs has dropped for the first time since the epidemic began. But the death toll remains high. Yesterday, 777 people died due to complications with COVID-19, though that is slightly down from the day before. As someone who searches for solace in all this grief, uh, the, the leveling off of the number of lives lost is a somewhat hopeful sign. But with hundreds dying each day, the city must move quickly to bury the dead. Startling drone footage released by Reuters today shows rows and rows of white wooden coffins stacked three deep and two wide down long trenches in a public cemetery on Hart Island. Mayor Bill de Blasio says the dead were people without friends or family to claim them. Five new coronavirus testing sites will open in New York City in the coming days. The first, a drive through facility in a Sears parking lot in Flatbush, opened this afternoon. Governor Cuomo says testing sites are placed strategically in lower-income minority communities, which data shows are being hit hardest by the coronavirus. Mayor Bill de Blasio plans to ask the federal government to freeze rents for New York City's public housing residents. He said on WNYC this morning that he will get an answer today for the 400,000-plus who live in NYCHA facilities. Uh, clearly, this is the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. I think it's quite clear why a rent freeze makes sense. And finally, just as Passover seders and services moved online earlier this week, cathedrals and churches around the city are commemorating Good Friday today via live stream to comply with social isolation requirements. In St. Patrick's Cathedral on Manhattan, priests sang in front of a webcam and empty pews. They plan to do the same on Easter Sunday. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Will Walkie. To slow the spread of coronavirus, non-essential workers are being told to work from home. But this shift can raise new security issues. As they bring sensitive information onto their personal computers, workers now find themselves responsible for their own and their company's cybersecurity. Lee Honeywell is the founder and CEO of Tall Poppy, an app that helps employees protect personal and business information. She says that as our work lives move increasingly online, we're likely to see even more cybersecurity threats like phishing scams and security breaches. I asked her which of these pose the greatest risk, what steps we can take to avoid them, and what a cyber footprint really is. None of this, none of the stuff that's happening is new. It's just an amplification of existing problems. People have more time on their hands. Some of the people who have more time on their hands are, spe- are not spending it doing good things. They're spending it bothering other people. 
one thing that we're seeing is because everybody's online so much more, there's more opportunities for miscreants to to bother people as they're going about their day-to-day lives because now more and more of their day-to-day lives are online. All of those things that you would have done in person with five or ten people, you're doing in a Zoom call like, like we are right now. So what are risks we should be aware of now that more people are working from home? One of the biggest misconceptions about hacking is that there's these like nefarious computer geniuses that are manipulating computer systems in order to break into your computer or your online accounts. What they're usually doing is finding a password that you've used in a website that's had a security issue and you've used that password in 15 or 20 or 100 different websites and one of those websites the password's been compromised so if you used this like crap same crappy password as you've had since 2007 on bobspetfood.com i hope that doesn't actually exist but poor bob got his pet food site hacked an attacker might take that same password and use it to break into your gmail account to break into your twitter account and when we hear a lot of of um stories of people's accounts being broken into and they're like I got hacked and it's like I mean yeah but what happened was that you used the same password everywhere which like we're human it's it sucks to have to remember a zillion passwords so what my like biggest cybersecurity recommendation to everyone is is use a password manager um in terms of these different types of risks how are they being made worse because of this increase in working from home and people just being online more Well, one of the big things, um, as there's been this massive shift to work from home, not every company is set up to have all their workers take their their computers home, whether it's because they got big clunky desktops or they have policies and they haven't been sort of limber in adapting their policies to the new reality. Um, And so you hear stories of like, oh, this person is working from home, but she's working on her personal computer doing work stuff. And I think that's probably the biggest one that I would encourage folks to really encourage companies to to not require employees to use their their personal computers to do work things. What's a cyber footprint and why is that important? In terms of what our online footprint is, we think of it as being like, what do we personally post to social media, whether Twitter, Facebook or blog, that kind of thing, the stuff that sort of we control. But there's all of this stuff out there about us online. We have some amount of control over it but we didn't necessarily like consent to post it in the first place because it's scraped from these various like credit reporting agencies and um, all of these data brokers that have information on on hundreds of millions of Americans. And uh, what this means is that there's all of these different websites that have your home address on them because they've purchased you know, giant databases of everybody's home address from um, what are called data brokers. That's super scary. Um, With so much more of us online, you know, all the time now, how much more concerned should we be about our cyber footprint and how can we protect ourselves? I haven't yet seen any sort of uptick in the kinds of attacks that people do with that information. Um, One of the the worst kind of attacks, um, and it's sort of like a bummer to even explain that this exists, but there's a, a type of attack called swatting which is where uh, somebody calls in a fake hostage or terrorist threat at a particular address and says, like, you know, I'm going to 
commit some sort of act of terrorism at this house. My name is Lee, who lives at XY address. Um, obviously, it's not actually me making the call, but the idea is to get the cops to show up and possibly like cause harm physically to the person who's at this address. Um, and unfortunately, this has resulted in at least one death in the U.S. And we can have a whole other conversation about the militarization of law enforcement that is definitely related. Um, but this is an unfortunate way that online harassment can have real world consequences. And that's that's like a much more severe version of the traditional like you, you call a fake pizza order to somebody's house. Lee, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I'm definitely going to go and change all of my passwords right now. That makes me so happy to hear. Uh, Stay safe out there. And now the latest installment of our series, Voices of the City. Today, we hear from a nurse working at New York Presbyterian Hospital on the Upper East Side. Most of the time, the nurses are the only people that are going in the rooms. The doctors don't even go in the rooms. So we're stuck in those rooms for like hours at a time. Caitlin Roberts, former pediatric nurse, currently taking care of adult COVID patients while Cornell, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Never taking care of an intubated patient until this week. I put a surgical cap on my head. I put my goggles on. I have a surgical mask. And then when I'm going into the rooms, I'm putting a protective gown on and I'm putting my N95 mask on with a surgical mask over it. And then after I put all of it on, then I put a second um, surgical cap on and then two pairs of gloves. February, I, I had like two trips. I went on plane four times and now I wouldn't even think of doing that. I became a nurse because I wanted to help people and people need my help right now. But I can't wait until we can go back to our normal unit and working with kids. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a drop in calls to New York State's child abuse hotline. But do fewer calls really mean that kids are safer? Reports of abuse are often filed by so-called mandated reporters. And now a debate has emerged among child welfare experts over whether these reports reveal patterns of race-based discrimination. As Anya Schultz finds, critics of the system say there were too many calls to begin with. Lots of New Yorkers are mandated reporters. Doctors, counselors, police officers, teachers. State law requires that if a mandated reporter suspects a kid is being abused or neglected, they have to report it by calling a state hotline. Here's a clip from a training video. Good morning. This is the New York State Central Register. My name is Gary. How may I help you today? If it seems like the child is in danger, a caseworker will investigate the family. Schools make up more calls than any type of mandated reporter, which makes sense. That's where kids spend most of their time. Karina Rodriguez is director of counseling for New York City Public Schools. She says mandated reporting has been difficult with social distancing. Students may not have privacy, you know, to be able to tell the counselor like, hey, 
you know, this is happening, right? When they're in school, there's a sense of safety. Last year, parents of almost 85,000 children were investigated in New York City. According to New York's Office of Children and Family Services, calls to the state hotline have decreased slightly since mid-March. Annie Costello of the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children supports mandated reporting. She says it's even more important now that kids are stuck at home all day and potentially subject to more abuse. There is that concern that maybe children are at greater risk. So during times of extra stress, this could increase abuse in the home. But Joyce McMillan says the whole concept of mandated reporters is rooted in racism. So, she says, it doesn't help children. Instead, it preys on low-income families, putting them under heavy scrutiny and sometimes leading to family separations. She remembers sending her daughter to middle school wearing shorts in the late fall. But it was definitely too chilly to wear shorts. Definitely. But she was in her mood that morning as a youngster and demanded that she wear the shorts. And I didn't have time to fight. The school called in a report saying that McMillan didn't dress her daughter properly. A child welfare worker came to the school to investigate. McMillan says this kind of thing happens a lot. It was a continual nightmare she experienced sending her daughter, who is black, to a mostly white school. It was so bad that she became an advocate to help parents like her. She says mandated reporting is like stop and frisk. Stop and frisk did not make crimes go down. It was a way to harass the Black community. And it's the same thing with mandated reportership. According to state data, most of the calls made to New York's hotline are not about child abuse. More often, they're accusations of neglect, not having enough food, or missing too much school. In most cases, close with workers finding no evidence of abuse or neglect. Richard Wexler of the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform agrees with McMillan. He says kids are safer without mandated reporters. So if mandated reporters inundate the system with false allegations, trivial cases, cases in which family poverty is confused with neglect, then the system is so overloaded workers have less time to find children in real danger. Aaron Miles Cloud represented parents accused of neglect in New York City family court for years. Now she works to reform child welfare. She says, yes, home isn't always a safe space for kids, but she's more worried about the system of mandated reporting being seen as the best solution. If we leave this pandemic entrenching that narrative, then what we will end up doing is bolstering mandated reporting long term, which will have really harmful impacts on families moving forward. She says instead of reporting families for what they don't have, housing, food, clothing, health care, the schools and cities should work together to provide those resources. Anya Schultz, Columbia Radio News. Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race to become the presidential Democratic nominee. But 23 states have yet to hold primaries, including New York. Kira Long asks how losing such a central candidate will affect voter turnout. Zach Repko is a 32-year-old Bernie supporter in Brooklyn Heights. He'd been working remotely earlier this week when... The group chat I have with my brother and sister lit up with um, a lot of crying emojis. Bernie Sanders had dropped out. I was um, super upset, equal parts mad and sad. Emily Giske, a member of the New York State Democratic National Committee, said that primaries affect more than the presidential nomination. They're also fundamental for positions in Congress, the Senate, and the State Assembly. It's really important to people to have a say. That's part of democracy, and that's part of what the blue team does. 
but New York State typically has low voter turnout during primaries. David Birdsell, Dean of CUNY's Marx School of Public and International Affairs, says Bernie's withdrawal could make things worse. Uh, I, I think Sanders dropping out is one of the factors that will drive lower turnout in this, in this race. Birdsell says reforms like easier voter registration and mail-in ballots would increase turnout, but... The difficulty right now is that we need to do all of this in a very tight time frame while government has many more serious concerns on its mind uh, in the wake of this pandemic. As for Bernie supporter Zach Repko, he'll still be voting in the primaries. Kira Long, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. And I'm Jamaris Perez. Up next, we'll hear how two at-risk groups are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, asthma patients and LGBTQ seniors. We'll also look at how the shift to remote learning is affecting children with special needs. These stories and more coming up. 42 states are now under shelter-in-place orders in a nationwide effort to reduce transmission of the coronavirus. The stakes are particularly high for the 25 million Americans with asthma. According to the CDC, their asthma puts them at a greater risk for severe illness if they contract the virus. Take Glass reports on one New Yorker with the condition who is trying to stay healthy. Brandon Jackson has to go outside maybe twice a day to walk his dog, Han. And yes, he did name his dog after a Star Wars character. The air is very clear today. Jackson is sensitive to air quality. He has asthma. And these days, he can feel that the air quality near his Harlem apartment is way better than it was just a few weeks ago. For all of the fear and turmoil that COVID-19 has caused, air quality has improved across the globe. Carbon monoxide from cars and other traffic is estimated to be down by nearly 50% in New York City compared to last year. CO2 over the city has dropped almost 10%. And for Jackson, the change is remarkable. There is definitely a difference now uh, that nobody's outside or using cars. Um, it It is discernible. It feels like the world has cleaner lungs. But going outside these days also comes with extra fear and uncertainty. Yeah, when I walk outside, I, I, do, I do have like this existential anxiety. Jackson remembers getting pneumonia in the sixth grade. I had a terrible cough and I missed a ton of school for like eight months or like nine months. And if this is just as dangerous, um, if not more so, it's how healthy can I, how healthy am I to fight something off that we don't even know everything about yet. Jackson lives in Harlem, which is one of the highest rates of asthma in New York. Citywide, one in 10 people have the condition, but in Harlem, it's more like one in four. Lubna Ahmed, who works for We Act for Environmental Justice, says that this disparity is due, in part, to the neighborhood's higher levels of pollution. In all of Manhattan, five out of the seven bus depots are located north of 100th Street, and you kind of get this, like, really like stale, stagnant air that, you know, you can almost like, you know, cut the air with a knife. Ahmed says that lower income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color often get stuck with bus depots, trash facilities, wastewater treatment plants, 
that more affluent white neighborhoods don't want. You don't want kind of like this, this eyesore or something that smells in that neighborhood, um, but it can be in a black and brown neighborhood and, and that's fine. I mean, so our most vulnerable communities, um, you know, are dealing with um, the worst of like climate change and environmental degradation. And chronic conditions like asthma. And this might help explain why preliminary data shows that people in these neighborhoods have worse outcomes when they contract coronavirus than people elsewhere in the city. People in the Bronx are twice as likely to die from COVID-19 than their neighbors in Manhattan, according to recent data from NYC Health. Hi, Dr. Kaplan. Dr. Alan Kaplan is a respirologist who specializes in asthma. He says that the coronavirus and asthma affect the lungs in different ways. When they're asthma, they can't empty their lungs and they can't get a breath in. Uh, with COVID, they can get the breath in, it just doesn't work. But Kaplan says that as long as a person's asthma is under control, they should be all right. If someone's asthma is not controlled very well, they're going to get sick, they'll probably do worse than someone whose asthma is very well controlled. People with asthma can't control the coronavirus but they can try to limit their exposure to it and work to keep their asthma under control. Tay Glass, Columbia Radio News. With New York City schools shut down, parents have been tasked with helping their children learn from home. But kids can have a tough time with online instruction, especially those with special education needs. And some parents of those children are worried about how remote learning will impact students with disabilities. My co-host Jamaris Perez reports. Last year, Rachel Sokol's two-year-old Amy was diagnosed with nonverbal autism. After months of speech and physical therapy, Sokol saw great improvement in her daughter's behavior. Her therapists have just taught her how to kind of calm down and communicate with us without necessarily throwing a tantrum and rolling herself on the floor. Then COVID-19 hit. Schools closed and so did special education programs for a quarter million students in New York City. Now Sokol is self-isolating with her two daughters in Forest Hills, Queens, and working with Amy's occupational therapist, or OT, online. One of the things they're focusing on is improving Amy's motor skills, like showing her how to hold a spoon. She'll, like, move her finger the wrong way, and the OT's like, oh, no, her third finger, move it closer, that's not how you hold a spoon. And I'm like, how the hell would I have noticed that? As much as she tries... She feels teletherapy isn't a replacement for the programs her daughter benefits from. They're like trying to talk me through it, but I'm sitting there like, I don't know how to be a speech therapist. That's why you're here, you know, like, it's hard. Sokol's biggest concern is that her daughter will stop making progress. In just a few weeks, Amy has gone from picking up a few words to screeching when she can't communicate. I almost feel like we're back where we were before she started. I'm frustrated because the longer this goes on, This could be a huge developmental setback for my child and so many children out there. The Department of Education says they provided a three-day training to prepare therapists for online sessions. The DOE did not respond to requests for more detailed information about the training, but one therapist I spoke with said teletherapy remains a huge challenge, partly because the sessions rely on direct contact with students. Maggie Moroff, the Special Education Coordinator at Advocates for Children, says to make teletherapy effective, the DOE also needs to consider a range of factors affecting each family. Based on language, based on um, the parent's work, based on the parent's work schedule, based on the needs of the child, based on the other number 
of children in the household. So it's going to look really different based on each child and each household. Dr. Audrey Trainer teaches special education at NYU. She suggests that parents look for ways to make home life part of developmental learning. There are constantly questions and dialogues and natural ways of thinking about problem solving that can occur. Things like folding laundry, um, mating socks, you know, things that really get their hands moving. Back in Forest Hills, Rachel Sokol is still working with Amy to keep her hands moving at home with a teletherapy rendition of Wheels on the Bus. I'll play it on my phone and like Amy will do the hand motions through the computer with the therapist. Round and round, move on back, wipers on the bus. But Sokol says this isn't enough. If teletherapy extends until the next school year, she's concerned students with disabilities won't get the longer term help they need. Jamaris Perez, Columbia Radio News. Seniors have been hit hard by the COVID-19 outbreak. They're more susceptible than younger people to negative health outcomes from the virus, and they're more likely to suffer from social isolation. That can be particularly tough for LGBTQ seniors who may be even more isolated, according to Andre Guess. He's the deputy director of Griot Circle, a Brooklyn-based community organization serving LGBTQ elders. I asked him why he thinks LGBTQ seniors are especially vulnerable right now. Oftentimes, unlike other seniors who may be part of a family, you know, who may have, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, family members or such, LGBT um, adults, especially those of color, may not have that, whether it's just them. So if, we're, if you're looking at isolation, they don't have somebody in that house to, you know, communicate with or, or bond with. And if anything, their house feels more like a prison. The risk uh, for LGBT seniors uh, extend to the fact that there are still mistrust of other um, institutions, whether it's senior services, medical services, based on you know uh, being stigmatized for their sexuality. Uh, even now, you know you may have LGBT seniors who may not even want to approach doctors in this situation uh, based on past instances of not feeling welcome. They may not necessarily reach out as soon as they, as when they should, and that they may wait until symptoms or anything is too late. A lot of your clients experienced the HIV and AIDS epidemic of the 1980s firsthand. So what does this healthcare crisis look like for those that are HIV and AIDS positive and therefore immunocompromised? Well, you know, it's interesting. This is so similar to when HIV came out, you know, the stigma of having it, which unfortunately was being directed toward Chinese American today. But back then, you know, it was definitely directed to gay um, um, individuals. Uh, it's the, um, the, you know, people isolating each other from that. I mean, that, that tone, it just, there's so similarity to that it, it's uh, eerie. That's heartbreaking. Do you think having gone through that somehow informs this experience for your clients? Like makes it easier or harder for them? I think if anything, it's, it's weird, but I think that they, because they went through the earlier 
stigma of HIV, they have more of a calm about it, whereas, you know, other people who have never experienced those feelings of uh, stigma, who have never experienced people passing away suddenly, because, again, with HIV, you know, during, especially during the early days when people were dying, that unfortunately, it was, it was a sad norm, but also it was a part of the disease. But, you know, for those now with this virus and again with so many people, you know, being lost, you know, from what I've heard from the, the older adults is that although they they understand it, they also, I think, have a greater coping skills based on the fact they went through this before. Andre, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for letting me talk about this real important topic. We're all waiting for signs of when life in New York might even begin to get back to normal, the way things used to be, when we can emerge from isolation, go back to school and to work, and end social distancing. Sarah Gelbard looks at how people are managing while we wait. Hillary Goldman is a preschool teacher in Brooklyn. She has struggled with knowing how catastrophic coronavirus is for so many people across the country. She's been fielding concerns from her three- and four-year-old students, too. You know, this has, like, been the most pressing question for the children recently. Like, when am I going to go back to school? Why is school closed? And when am I going to see my friends? The first remote lesson was about making a schedule. Some of the ways that I described it is like, oh, how nice is it to know how your day is going to go and to know what comes first and what comes after and how every day your day, your schedule will change. By helping the kids, she has been more able to make her own quarantine schedule. Brad Klontz is a psychologist who teaches at Creighton University. He agrees that such coping strategies are useful. Is this a situation that you feel like you can tackle, that you have confidence that you can see through, overcome, or do you feel like you're drowning and you worry that you have the ability to cope with it? He says reframing situations can be especially beneficial. Goldman has done this for her students. You know, why is my mom and dad not coming home? They're both first responders and they can't. This child is left without her mom or her dad. And reframing it to be like, actually, your mom is a hero, your dad's a hero, and you're a hero. Helping her students to reframe has helped her too. Sarah Gelbard, Columbia Radio News. This year, as with many other aspects of our daily lives, the traditional Passover Seder, as well as Easter celebrations, are going online. Emily Pizzacreta talks with New Yorkers about what it's like to celebrate both holidays around the computer. Why is this Seder different from all other Seders? This year, for many Jewish families in New York, there was another guest at the table, the computer screen. Robin Alfsess usually has a big 20-person Seder in Long Island. Like other years, she cooked everything in advance. I had already cooked three briskets, um, a giant potato kugel, baked my cakes, everything is in the freezer. But by the time Passover came around, she knew it wasn't all going to get eaten. But she and her husband set her computer up on a stack of books at the dining room table, shared the link for the evening Haggadah, and kicked off their first virtual Seder on Zoom. I had sent out two icebreaker questions for people to prepare. I'm a teacher, I can't help myself. Rebecca Fabro comes from a large extended Italian-American family. They're planning a Zoom on Sunday for Easter, hoping it'll cheer up her grandmother, who lives in a nursing home where visitors are now banned. 
Fabro says their Easter dinners are usually festive, with lots of food. But this year, she thinks it'll be quieter, and maybe even a little somber. And she says, that's okay. You know, when you look at the Bible and you look at the early celebrations of Easter, they weren't giant church celebrations. They were, um, you know, very private celebrations. Whether it's Easter, Passover, or another holiday, the hope is the same. Next year, in person. Emily Pizzacreta, Columbia Radio News. All right, that's it for this week's podcast edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Cecily Moran, running the show from Exeter, Rhode Island. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Brett Forrest in Denver, Colorado, with help from Tay Glass in Ontario, Canada, and Anya Schultz in San Francisco, California. Director Lauren Peace coordinated our production from Rochester, New York. Senior editor Asim Shukla and assistant editor Megan Cattell led our copy team both from Manhattan. Sarah Gelbard managed our website today from Rochester, New York. And she and Kira Long in Manhattan, Emily Pizzacreta in Brooklyn, and Will Walkie in Duxbury, Massachusetts brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York, and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Jamaris Perez in Miramar, Florida. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.